friends, let us now listen to Brother Mel Caparos, pastor of Living Word Christian Churches of Cebu International. not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar you see that faith was working with his works and as a result of the works faith was perfected and the scripture was fulfilled which says and Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness and he was called the friend of God you see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. Let's bow our heads in prayer at this time. Our Heavenly Father, we Thank you and bless you for this wonderful morning that you've given us, O oh God, reminding us once again of the amazing grace that you have poured out in our lives. And that is but timely, O oh Lord, considering that we will be celebrating the Lord's table today. And we pray, Lord, that you might prepare our hearts by allowing us, Lord, to fix our eyes on you. And allow the word of God to minister to us. Let it instruct us. Let it reprove us. Let it correct us, O God, so that we might walk in alignment to your will, O God. We seek your grace to abound in our midst. I pray for myself, O Lord, that you might equip me, that I might speak to your people in a manner that will bring conviction. And Lord, whatever is going to be achieved today, we will give you back the glory, the praises, and the thanks. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. Let's be seated in the presence of the Lord. Now, we will be concluding the short series that we began last Sunday, which we had entitled, The Proof of Faith. So this is part two. And the final installment of that short series. By the way, this also wraps up our study on the book of James chapter 2. And so let me just start off with an illustration. Most religions of the world represent man's effort to reason up to God and become acceptable to Him. In China, for example... There are devout pilgrims who ascend a sacred mountain which is called Taishan. They climb 7,000 steps to its summit. Now, just try to imagine 7,000 steps. And you and I already have a hard time just going up three levels into this sanctuary. All the more, can you imagine 7,000 steps? Now, what they do is they first pass through what they call as the middle gate and then through heaven's southern gate. Now finally, 
they reach one of the most beautiful buildings in China, which is called the Temple of the Azure Cloud. Here, what they do is they offer up sacrifices, which the worshipers believe will gain God's favor. And so what they're thinking is when you're able to do that, go 7,000 7, steps, offer sacrifices, God would accept you. Now, such effort, of course, represents great religious fervor, but at the same time, it's a futile effort. For it brings the devotee no closer to God than when he mounted the first step. All the religions, with the exception of genuine Christianity, believes that the way to God is the way of good works. That the way of salvation is by performing well enough so that you become acceptable to God. Even right now in modern day Israel, if you're going to talk about the Orthodox Jews, they obviously believe that salvation is by good works. And they normally are recognized very easily because of the way they clothe themselves. They usually wear a black suit with a white polo inside, and then they have hats, different shapes, but all of them basically black in color. And they have this uh, sideburns, which they allow to really grow long, and they curl it up. So they are easily recognizable. And one of the things that they put emphasis on would be the Sabbath. And so when we were going to the Western Wall on a Sabbath day, our Israeli tourist guide said that we needed to respect the Sabbath. And so he said that the moment we reached the place, it was around 4.30, I believe, he said you can still take pictures. But the moment it reaches five o'clock, you've got to stop. They will not allow picture taking because it is considered a work and you're not supposed to do anything on Sabbath except to worship the Lord. And so that's exactly what happened. There were some tourists there who probably did not have tourist guides. And while the people were pl uh, praying, while the Jewish uh, people were praying, they were taking some pictures. And they had some guards that actually told them courteously but firmly that they could not take pictures. So we had that experience on a Sabbath, which actually begins on a Friday at 5 p.m., as I mentioned to you, and ends on a Saturday, 5 p.m. as well. And so when we were going back to our hotel, there were some of these young Orthodox Jews who were very zealous for their faith, and they saw that there were some shops that were open. And they were saying, uh, basically in their own Hebrew language, they were saying, what are you doing? Your shops are open. This is Jerusalem, and it is the Sabbath. Close down your shops. And they would go from store to store to store that was open. And basically, it comes, you know, the, the world in its various religions uh, takes different forms. 
But basically, the common denominator is you need to work your way towards salvation. And this is exactly what Paul was teaching against. And that is why, allow me to just once again bring before you Galatians 2.16 by way of review. So let's take a look once again at Galatians 2 verse 16. And here's what it says, nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law. Can you say this with me, please? A man, say it loudly, please. A man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. So clearly, we are told here what not to rely on and what to rely on to bring about our salvation. And what brings about our salvation is faith in Christ Jesus. Faith in His work, faith in His person, faith in the payment of our sins that He brought about by dying on the cross in Calvary. Continuing on, it says, so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Again, seemingly very redundant, but again, this is very Jewish. When they want to emphasize something, they will repeat themselves, they will express themselves differently, but with the same idea. And then it says, since by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. So once again, if you're thinking of getting yourself saved by way of good works, that's not going to happen. It is not going to work at all. Sadly, as we survey the world that we are living in, most people rely on good works or on their own human efforts to bring about their salvation. And it seems like they have found an ally in James. But as I mentioned to you, as I explained to you last weekend, upon closer examination, the book of James does not really teach salvation by good works. The key to understanding this book is to determine its emphasis. What is the point of emphasis of this book? And clearly, the emphasis is on the proof of faith, the proof of genuine faith, which is a changed life. So in other words, the good works that come out of our lives is the evidence that we are actually saved. Now, Jesus would definitely agree with James' line of thinking. And so I would like to be able to say that James was actually not original. Because you might think, well, is James teaching something that is new? Actually, no. I believe what James did was an amplification of many of the statements that Jesus made in the Gospels. Let me give you one example. Take a look, please, at John, the Gospel of John, chapter 15 and verse 8. All right? John 15, verse 8. And it goes, My Father 
is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit. That's the will of the Father. Now watch the next phrase. And so, what? And so prove to be my disciples. So in other words, James was actually just echoing what the Lord Jesus Christ had mentioned in the Gospels. There is a necessity for us to be able to prove that we are genuinely children of God. Not before the Lord because He knows our hearts. But there is a need for us to prove that we are indeed Christians by the way we live our lives. In our country, we have, as I mentioned to you, about 85 to 90% who claim to be Christians. But you and I know not everybody in this country who claims to be a believer is actually a believer. I would like to also be able to state in a very loving way that although we would like to believe that all of us here present right now are believers, it is highly probable that there are still quite a number amongst us who are not yet believers in Christ. And that is why, again, the necessity of proving our faith. Now, James' argument followed a threefold path, and we already discussed the first point, but let's just review it once again, just so we could retain what we had learned the first time around, and then we will move on to the next few points. We saw last time around the examples of Abraham and Rahab. Now, how did they prove that they were genuine believers? Well, in the case of Abraham, he proved that his faith was genuine by sacrificing his son, his only son, through Sarah, Isaac. Now, you and I mentioned the fact that there was 25 years of waiting for the child to be born. And then he grows up to be about 30 years old when God asked him to sacrifice his son. So if you total the number of years, you're talking about 55 years only for God to ask Abraham to sacrifice his son before the altar. So that only proves, I mean, what Abraham did proves one point. He proved by doing this that God was his supreme treasure. And this is, you know, something that we need to be able to prove before God and before people that he is our supreme treasure. Let me ask you this question. What is your supreme treasure? And my question is, there should be no, nothing that should rival our commitment, our loyalty, and our devotion to God. That being the case, are we willing to give up something that seems to rival our commitment to the Lord? And I think that's very important to determine whether our hearts are in the right place. When you and I are able to say, I'm willing to give up that which is most valuable to me, that might prove that you are actually a son or a daughter of God. Now, how did Rahab prove that she had genuine faith? Well, she was able to prove her genuine faith by aiding and hiding the spies of Israel. 
Now, what was she risking? She was risking her own life and the life of her own family. She was risking her own reputation as a citizen of the nation of Jericho. But why was she willing to do that? Because she genuinely believed in Yahweh. So the whole point of last weekend's sermon is that if we are really genuine believers, it will show. It will come out. Christ is our supreme treasure and we are willing to risk our very lives, even our own families, for the sake of God. And that is a question that we need to be able to answer if we are willing to do such things. And I think we can only gain confidence when we can say to ourselves, say to God, Lord, I'm willing to give up anything that you are asking from me. And I think that is very important. Now, we now move to the second point which is the explanation. And here in verse 22, what we will be talking about is genuine faith produces works. Again, in verse 22, we find something that relates to that as our second sub-point, the proof of genuine faith. And then in verse 23, we find the proof of Scripture's veracity of Abraham's right-standing and relationship with God because if you recall in the early parts of the book of Genesis God had actually declared that Abraham was righteous after he had believed in the promise of God now the question is how do we know it's genuine all right and again as I mentioned Abraham proved that before us in verse 21 the third and final point which we will tackle this uh, morning would be verses 24 to 26. And under that, two sub-points, justification by faith through the evidence of works. Once again, this is emphasized and it speaks about the necessity. This is absolutely necessary. All right? Good works are necessary to prove that we have eternal life. So we have the example, the explanation, and finally, the principle. So we go to the second point, which is the explanation in verses 22 to 23. So let's read once again these two verses. It says, you see that faith was working with his works. And as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. Now again, what does this teach us? Genuine faith produces works. Verse 22 reads, You see that faith was working with his works. Faith was working with his works. What this teaches is that faith will produce good works. This was seen in Abraham's sacrifice of Isaac, as we mentioned. Genuine faith is the beginning point, therefore, of works. Now, when I say the beginning point of works, I do not mean just events 
or circumstances wherein we actually do some good. We're talking about a lifestyle of good works, a consistent life of doing good, all right? So that is what we are talking about here, a lifestyle. For it is what brings about a changed heart and a changed life. Faith is what brings about a changed heart and a changed life. I'd like to once again remind you of Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, but this time I'd like to focus on verse 10. Now notice what it says here, For by grace you have been saved through what? Through faith, and that not of yourselves. What it is saying here is that this faith to believe in Christ is something that does not emanate from us. It is a gift of God. Therefore, it says here, it is the gift of God. Then it says, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Now, we can stop there and say, well, this is how we get saved. But of course, as we have been mentioning a while ago, our concern is, well, how do you prove that you are actually a genuine child of God? And that's why... Verses 8 and 9 has verse 10. And we cannot disconnect verses 8 and 9 from verse 10. It says, for we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we should walk in Him. Now, there's something quite interesting with the word workmanship here. It comes from the Greek word poiema, where we actually get the English word poem, all right? So you and I have probably, in our studies in high school and college, we've studied about poetry, most especially when we had our literature, our English and literature teachers teaching us on this genre, which is called poetry. And it's quite interesting that this word is actually used here because what this speaks of is skill. This speaks of creating something that is beautiful. And you and I are supposed to be living beautiful lives, lives that are actually attractive even to people who do not appreciate our faith. Because when they take a look at our lives, they, they stand in amazement. They are in awe of our marriages. While they are struggling deeply about their marriages, they find that in our marriages, though imperfect, there is love, there is forgiveness, there is harmony, there is reconciliation, there is understanding. And we are able, as believers, to work out our problems. We're able to sort out our issues. And they wonder, how is that even possible? Because in the world today, they are unable to reconcile themselves with each other. It might be that they are still living under one roof, but they're fighting with each other. They are at war with each other. It's like sleeping with an enemy. And that is rather unfortunate, and that is why when they look at our marriages, they somehow envy us. And they say, how I wish I could have a marriage like that. 
How I wish there would be love, forgiveness, and reconciliation. So in other words, this is what happens. This is how it looks like when you live the Christian life. This is how it looks like when you are genuinely saved. They see all those changes. They've probably known you in the past. And they're wondering that you have changed so radically it seems like they are talking, they are communing with somebody who is a total stranger. Because maybe in the past you used to have vices. Maybe you were a hot-tempered person. Maybe you were spewing out expletive language and all of a sudden you become gentle. You become quiet. You become not pugnacious. But you have self-control. And they're wondering... Why that has happened? Or maybe previously you were not religious at all. Maybe you came from another religion, but you were very nominal. And then all of a sudden they see you being very zealous and being very passionate, maybe even visiting prison cells and sharing the gospel to people who do not know the Lord. They see you traveling from one place to another. Sharing the good news. And they see that you are a person who has great affection towards God. That when you speak about God, you speak about Him in a very real way. That you begin to tear up. You have very strong emotions when you talk about God. And you know what? When people see that, they know it's genuine. When you speak and it's really coming from the heart, they know it's genuine. And people, actually, even people in the world, they appreciate genuineness. They appreciate something that is not fake. They appreciate something that is not real, although they might necessarily be willing to jump in or dive in to your faith, they will still nevertheless appreciate it. So here's the question that I have for you. When people look at your life, does it look like a poem? Does it look like something that is beautiful? Something that they could be attracted to? Something that they could respect? Something that they could admire? And this is the point of what comes about when you and I are saved. So once again, it reads, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Notice the good works do not emanate from us, but rather it comes from God. God is the cause. He is the reason why we are able to do these good works. He is the reason why we have a changed life. He is the reason why we have these religious affections. This is the reason why we have a spiritual appetite for the things of God. So once again, here we find that the origin is not from man. Our sanctification, the process of cleansing, the process of conformity to the image of Christ actually comes from God. It comes from the indwelling presence of Christ in us. Notice clearly it says, which God. Prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And when you think about this, friends, basically all the things that we do that are good are actually things that come from God. 
For example, as I mentioned to you, I never ever imagined that one day I would become a teacher and a Bible teacher at that. I never once imagined that I would be a pastor. But you know what? I'm just walking into the very plans of God. And one of the things that I never planned to do was to be a writer. That's something I never, ever imagined doing. But then it was a compelling call that God placed upon me. The first one who tried to talk me into writing a book was Dr. Ernest Mangis. And he told me, you need to write a book. There needs to be a Filipino who needs to write with sound theology. And I just nodded my head to be polite towards him. Second time we meet, once again, he tells me that, once again, he says, you need to write a book. And again, I just nod my head politely. But at the back of my mind, I'm thinking, well, right, uh, that's a good idea, but I doubt if I will ever have the time to write a book. And so comes Edmond Chan. And so after chit-chatting for a while and after he gets to know my heart, he tells me, you need to write a book. And at the back of my mind, I was thinking, there you go again. Somebody again suggesting to me that I need to write a book. So again, I just nodded my head. Then he talks to me a second time. And he says, you need to write a book. And this time, it was a little more compelling, but I was not yet convinced until finally on the last day before he left when he preached to us on a Sunday morning he gave me a book and he said Pastor Mel this is the first book I wrote and I'm giving this to you and it had a dedication on it I'm giving this to you because I really really want you to write a book so finally, it hit me. Finally, I realized this was a compelling call from God, and I actually had no choice because my choice was to be disobedient. But again, wanting to please God, I finally decided, well, this is the time I should start using my pen to write something. And it finally came out. And it has been validated, confirmed by other Bible scholars who read the book, gave their endorsements. Dr. Harold Sela, likewise, was so happy that I wrote the book. And finally now, it's going to come out. So again, was that my plan? No. I did not plan to write the book. But again, here's what it says. Which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So it comes from God. So here's what happens when, when God comes into your life. He now directs your life. He now becomes the captain of your destiny. And he charts your way. He tells you what to do. And when Jesus Christ was talking about the born again experience in the gospel of John chapter 3, he was talking about the principle of the wind blowing where it wishes. And basically what he was saying is that is how it is with children of God. The Spirit of God is like a wind. 
and the Spirit of God will blow us into places where we may not want to go, but He will blow us that way because that is the will of God. And this is exactly how it is for us who are children of God. We are spirit people. When I say spirit people with a capital S because the Holy Spirit lives and dwells in us. So actually what happens is we are directed by the Holy Spirit. And clearly what the book of Romans says is that those who are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. That is what happens. We live a life in the Spirit. Now let me ask you this question. Do you have that inner witness inside of you that tells you what to do? Do you have that witness inside of you that convicts you whenever you are about to fall into sin or fall into temptation? Is there an inner guide that is very much present, that is very much a reality of your life? Is there a voice that you hear, not necessarily an audible voice, but sometimes a gentle whisper, impressions in your mind, convictions in your heart that tell you what you need to do. That is a sign that you are a child of God. So the point of James is without genuine faith, there can be no works. Again, when I speak about works, consistent life of goodness, all right? In the same manner that you cannot have fruits without a good tree. Again, this is what Jesus says. Take a look at Matthew 7, verse 16. Again, as we take a look at this, this makes us realize that what James was saying after all was not new. It was not new. Jesus had been saying it all along. So take a look at this, beginning at verse 16. It says, you will know them by what? You will know them by their fruits. Graves are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles are they. So every good tree bears good fruit. But the bad tree bears bad fruit. Now how do you know what kind of a tree you are? How do you know if you're a good tree? How do you know if you are a bad tree? Jesus makes it very simple to us. He says if you're a bad tree, bad fruit's going to come out. But if you are a good tree then good fruit is going to come out. Continuing, it says, verse 18, a good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. So we're talking about the very nature, so to speak, of the tree. It is the nature of the tree that produces the fruit. And so if, we're, if we have an apple tree, it will not produce an orange fruit. I mean, that is obvious. It is the nature that determines the fruit. So if what we have in our hearts is the divine nature, because that's exactly what Peter talks about. He said we are made partakers of divine nature. And if that is what is inside, definitely good will come out of that. 
However, if what we have in our nature is merely our sinful nature, then guess what's going to come out? Sins and bad fruit. Again, here's what Jesus says, and this is so sobering. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Now that's so sobering. This is why it is necessary for me to be able to see the evidence that I'm saved through good works. Because if I cannot see good works in my life, if I cannot see a changed life, listen up. I do not have the assurance that when I die, I will go to heaven. I don't have that assurance. Because again, clearly it says every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and is thrown into the fire. That's exactly what happened. And that's why, again, this is something that just wakes you up from your spiritual slumber. Look at verse 20. It says, so then you will know them by their fruits. You will know them. You will know my disciples by their fruits. So what was Jesus talking about here? The same thing that James was talking about. This is not justification in the sight of God, but rather justification in the sight of men. This is, what, this is Jesus saying, well, this is how you know if the person who claims to be Christian is Christian. This is how you know them. You will know them by their fruits. You will know them by their life. That's the point of Jesus here. So James was not really original. Jesus is the original. Now here's something even more sobering. Look at verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. So it's not about claiming to be a believer that will bring you to heaven. You can claim all you like. You can pray all the sinner's prayer. But here's what God looks at as proof that you are saved. That you do the will of the Father. That is what it's saying here. So in other words, what are we talking about here? We're talking about obedience. How do we obey? We obey by reading the word of God. And we follow exactly to the letter and in spirit what the Word of God has to say. We cannot be selective in our obedience. Whatever the Word of God tells us to do, that is what we need to do. That is what proves that we are really children of God. And again, this raises another question insofar as our living is concerned. When we read the scripture, do we actually obey it? Do we follow it? Do we submit to it? Do we yield to it? That's very important. That is proof that we are truly children of God. Even more sobering is verse 22 and 23. It says, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Now we're talking here, now this is, there is a progression here. First, we're talking about people who are claiming to be believers. 
But now we're talking here in, in these two verses, we're not just talking about people who are claiming to be believers, but people who are actually workers, seemingly workers of the Lord. People who were in ministry. People who were doing the Lord's work. And even further than that, these people were experiencing some supernatural occurrences. Casting out demons, performing miracles, healing. They were doing all that stuff. They were not doing it in the name of another God. They were doing it in the name of the Lord. So in other words, these were people who did not only claim to be Christians, but were workers and were experiencing the power of God in their lives. And yet, at the end of the day, when they wake up in eternity, here's what they wake up to. Look at verse 23. And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Now, this is not talking about backsliders here. And why do we know that these are not backsliders? Well, because the statement of the Lord is, I never knew you. I mean, it's, it's like Jesus Christ is saying, who are you? I don't know you. We, we never had a relationship. We never had a connection. We never worked together. We were never really part of this kingdom which I am trying to build. You are a stranger. You are an alien. I never knew you. It's not like I knew you once but you turned your back. This is not what Jesus is saying here. From the very start, from the very beginning, Jesus did not have a relationship with these people. I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So again, we're talking about lifestyle here. You who practice lawlessness. It's your way of life to sin. It's your way of life to lie. It's your way of life to be angry. It's your way of life to gossip. It's your way of life. Not to forgive. It's your way of life to compromise and to watch lustful material. It is your way of life, of corruption. That's what is being talked about here. And this is a passage of scripture that, that hits home. Right at the very core of our beings. Most especially those who are working in the vineyard of the Lord. This is a passage of scripture that just captures my attention and just makes me think, am I really a child of God? Am I really a son of God? Because if I am not, all these things that I do, the preaching every Sunday, the writing of books, well, it's all useless and pointless. None of what I do and none of what I say is going to save me from the lake of fire. That's the sad reality if you are not a child of God. So I'm hoping that as we look into these passages, we allow ourselves to be convicted by God 
And that's why, again, because of these things that surround the kingdom of God, there is a necessity to prove our genuine faith, which brings us to verse 22, the proof of genuine faith. Notice what it says here. And as a result of the works, faith was perfected. Meaning to say, good works proved. And this was talking about Abraham. Good works, the good works of Abraham proved that his faith was genuine. Because he proved at that point in time that God was his supreme treasure. Not only did that do that, it proved Scripture's veracity or truthfulness of Abraham's declared right standing and relationship with God, which we find in verse 23. All right? So that is what we see here. So let's just read verse 23. It goes, And the Scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. Now, I'd like you to notice something. Here's a question I have for you. Try to pay close attention to what I have to ask you. When God said that he was righteous, was Abraham, did Abraham at that time already sacrifice his son Isaac? And the answer is obvious, no. It was about maybe 55 years later when he sacrificed his own son. But before that time, before, before the 55 years when he did this, this sacrifice, God said, you are righteous. Now here's another question I have for you. Was Abraham declared righteous before or after circumcision? Was he declared righteous before circumcision or after circumcision? If you go to the book of Romans, you will find out that Abraham believed God first before he actually became circumcised. Now, why am I bringing out these very important points? To prove to you that it was not the sacrifice that made him righteous. It was not the circumcision that made him righteous. What made him righteous was his faith. And that, my dear brothers and sisters, is what makes us righteous in the sight of God. Our faith in what He has done. The good work simply affirmed what the Scriptures had declared about Abraham previously, that he had genuinely believed in God as his Savior. It was genuine faith that produced his positional righteousness before God. And made him a friend of God. By the way, are you aware that before we came to God, before we came to Christ, we were enemies of God? I'd like to amplify that further as we go on. But let me just ask you this question. What should we have faith on for us to become right with God and become his friends? Again, Let's ask this question. 
What should we have faith on for us to become right with God and become His friends? How many here want to become friends of God? Raise your hands, please. All right, we all want to be friends of God. So here's how, all right? Here's how. Romans 5, 6 to 10, please. Romans 5, 6 to 10. It reads, For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man, someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates His own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Isn't that amazing? Christ did not die for us when we were His friends. He died for us when we were His enemies. Now, try to think about a person who may not necessarily be your enemy, but somebody you don't like. Somebody who irritates you. Let me ask you this question. Would you be willing to die for that person you don't like? And you will say, no way. That's not happening at all. And friends, this is the amazing thing. That's why the grace of God is amazing. Amen? He did not die for people he liked. He died for people who were his enemies. It says here, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved through the wrath of God through him. So what is it that we put our faith on? This is what we put our faith on. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses and washes all of our sins. Our past, present, and future sins. Amen? That is what saves our soul. Hallelujah. Amen? What a wonderful grace this is. And it gets better. It gets even better. Look at verse 10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. Well, what's this saying? What's this saying is this, and, and my father said it in a very nice way. I still remember how he explained this to me. And this is how it goes. When did Christ save you? When you were his enemy. And the point of verse 10 is this. Since you are now his friend, what makes you think that he will let go of you? Are you listening? So to those who think, can I lose my salvation? Can I lose this salvation that I have gained through faith in Christ, the answer is no. Because when he saved you, you were his enemy. Now, if you are in Christ, you are his friend. And if you are now his friend, why would he let go of you? It doesn't make sense. My father used this illustration. He said, 
If somebody is drowning and you throw a lifeline to him and you bring him to the ground, will you push him back to the water to drown again? Would you do that? Now you've got to be crazy to do that. Amen? So when God pulls you to the ground of salvation, brethren, when you are in the ground of heaven, He will not throw you back. Once genuinely saved, always saved. Always saved. That's the point of verse 10. You cannot lose your salvation. That's why it's all by grace. Which brings us to our final point, which is the principle in verse 24 and 26, where we find justification by faith through the evidence of works. Verse 24 reads, You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. So the point here, as I mentioned to you, is not that we are saved by faith plus works. No, it is only faith that saves us. But how do you know? How do you prove? As Jesus said, you prove to be my disciples with the fruit that comes out. You prove to be my disciples by the love that comes out. You prove to be my disciples by the forgiveness that comes out. You prove to be of genuine faith because what comes out of your life is goodness, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And all of these things that we find in Galatians 5, 22 and 23. Justification here, as I have pointed out, is not justification in the sight of God but justification in the sight of man. How did this conversation begin? James began this conversation by saying, show me. Show me. And this is what we tell everybody who comes to us and, and declares that he is a Christian. What we have to say is, show me. Show me you are a believer. Show me you are a Christian. A man who truly has saving faith will manifest it by his good works. True faith is always accompanied by good works. Let me use an illustration. When lightning lights up the sky, what next? What next comes? What is it? that comes next after the lightning lights the sky. Thunder, right? When there is lightning, thunder will come out. There can be no thunder, right, without lightning. Lightning comes first and then the thunder comes. So let me use this as an illustration of faith and works. If there is Faith, the lightning of faith that lights the sky, the thunder of good works will necessarily come out. Amen? Amen? That is the proof that our faith is genuine. 
So here we find that works is necessary. We find the necessity of works as proof of life. Verse 26, for just as the body without the spirit is dead. How do you know a body is dead? You kick it, it won't do anything. You uh, pinch it, it won't react. You try to do all sorts of things, it won't react and respond. It's dead. The body is separated from the spirit. And the same thing is true. When there is no faith, you have no expectations. There is no life. In contrast, Jesus said in John 10, verse 10, the thief comes, that's referring to Satan, only to steal, kill, and destroy. I, that's Jesus Christ speaking here, I came that they might have what? Life. Not only life, but abundant life. How do you know there's life? There's activity. Amen. How do you know if your spouse is still alive? When you wake up in the evening, how do you know your spouse beside you is still alive? What do you do? Well, you probably touch the back and see if there's movement. If your spouse is still breathing, that means your spouse is still alive. Right? When there is no movement, there is no life. So friends, the bottom line is this. If you're saved, your life will show it. Amen? Your life will show it. So let's just bow our heads at this time. And close our eyes. Again, this wraps up James' point on works as the evidence of genuine faith. And I hope that in the past few Sundays, including the preaching of our past two guest preachers, I pray that the path to salvation has been made clear to you. Now the response is up to you. Do you, how do you respond to this? You need to respond to the truth by saying, Jesus, be the Lord and be the Savior of my life. And you can do that right now. Don't wait for tomorrow. Don't wait for next week, next month, or next year. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. Where you are right now, confess Jesus to be your Lord and Savior. Ask Him for mercy. Ask Him to save your soul if you're not saved. And if you are saved, ask Him, Lord, make certain my salvation. Change my life. 